I went through five weeks where I couldn't write a thing. I, it, you know, I'm, I write very contemporary novels, and I don't know the ending, so I, I basically stopped writing my book, didn't know what I was going to do, and five weeks went by. And I don't think five weeks have gone by since I graduated from college where I haven't written, but I had this five-week creative slump. If this does get adapted for film or TV, because, you know, let's face it, that could happen, uh, he's up for having uh, Dwayne Johnson or Idris Elba play him. <laughs> ah. <laughs> well, I can only say good luck with that. <laughs> How do you maintain such a high quality bar and such a high suspense bar on your stories when you're writing so prolifically? Well, I don't want to disappoint you, Phil, so that really kind of keeps me, uh, <laughs> keeps the bar up. There. Hello and welcome to this brand new podcast called Bestsellers with Phil Williams and Natalie Jameson. I, I know you might be thinking, yay, another new podcast. But if you like books, hopefully you're going to like what we've got to say about them and enjoy the brilliant authors we get to chat to. And crucially, we're going to get their recommendations for what to read next. Yeah, so not only will you get some great interviews with top writers here on this podcast, but also... Over the next few months, we'll build up a really good recommendations list from us and from them so that you're never stuck without a great book to dive into. Today's guest has written 34 different novels whose characters include Bosch, Lincoln, Lawyer, Rene Ballard, and he's back with one of his oldest characters, Jack McAvoy, the investigative journalist, the character who arguably is most like Michael Connolly. He's actually Phil's favourite author, so well done for landing him for episode one. So exciting. <laughs> so here he is then, recorded in the middle of May from lockdown from his home in Los Angeles. It is Michael Connolly. Well, look, first of all, Michael, let me say it's just so lovely to be reunited with you again. And it's so lovely to have read another Michael Connolly book where the bar is just so high. And the first question I have to ask you is, and I realise it's a bit of an invidious question to ask you, but how do you maintain such a high quality bar and such a high suspense bar on your stories when you're writing so prolifically? Well, I don't want to disappoint you, Phil, so that really kind of keeps me... Uh... <laughs> Keeps the bar up there. Um, well, seriously, seriously, you talk to a lot of writers, and I'm sure we all have the same that that bar you're talking about. We all raise it ourselves, and so um, I have expectations of what I'm doing and want to continue to do it right. Um, always try to be better than I was the last time. I don't know if I ever am, but um, you know that's that's the goal and. The bottom line is this is I have an amazing life that I'm able to do this and make a very comfortable living from it. So I do have to respect that and cherish it and, and work on it and never, you know, kind of mail it in. So um, and that and those are things that, you know, that's not like a, a pressure on me. That's just the, the standards that that I live by. But. At the end of the day, I love doing this and I love, you know, exploring new things, using these characters to explore new, new things and, uh, 
if I can find something new, like in this book, the DNA analytics is where it kind of started, then I dive in, and from that comes a lot of the uh, twists and turns and the uh, uh, reflection of what's going on in our world. Well, we'll get to the DNA stuff in a moment. and I've got some technical questions to ask you, Mike. I'm sure you'll be pleased to know. But before we do that, fair warning obviously sees the return of Jack McAvoy. And I just wanted to know why now and why Jack now? Well, Jack, I've used very sparingly over my career. Um, I think that's mostly because of um, he uh, is the most like me. He's, uh, in a way, my alter ego and... And, you know, you'd think like, well, you want to write about that all the time. I'd rather explore other people. So, therefore, you get these long um, spaces of time between when I uh, come to Jack. But when I do come to him, I usually have a purpose. One is to see where we are in in terms of the media. Um, It's a rapidly changing business, as you know, as as everybody should know. Um, So, I like to take Jack to kind of take the temperature of where we're at right now. And then I often use Jack to explore stuff that is uh, more technical in nature than like Harry Bosch chasing a murder suspect and so forth. I usually use Jack to explore some some new wave of technology that is of interest to me. And also with the writing of this book, of Fair Warning, I've been a journalist for a really long time, as has Phil. Um, and obviously that's where you started out too, uh, Michael. So what was it like? flexing that muscle again because you get to write some reports as part of fair warning as well was there kind of party was like i'm just really looking forward to being that reporter again and writing in that style yeah to a degree um i have to say though i did write a few of the reports that are in this book and it had been so long i had to like second guess do i even know you know (laughs) how to do that anymore but um yeah it's always fun to um, I think I've talked about this with Phil. I, I still feel like I'm a journalist at heart. I mean, that's what I did for mm. the first 15 years of my adulthood. And then I, even though I always viewed those as a means to a possible ends of being a novelist, I still feel like I'm moonlighting as a novelist and that um, in my heart of hearts, I'm, I'm a journalist. And, you know, there is some journalism in my fiction, but at the same time, it is always kind of a welcome return to uh, go to Jack and and uh, see where he's at and and see what his life is like as a journalist. There's such a brilliant blending of fact and fiction in Fair Warning as well, because for people who aren't aware, so Fair Warning is a site, a news organisation that you're involved with as well. Yeah, I mean, that ended up kind of being something that fell into my lap that occurred to me one day when I was getting ready to write this book. Um, Fair Warning is a real... um, news site it does uh, consumer reporting a lot of investigative reporting in terms of consumer protections and it's pretty much uh, it was founded and operated by a friend of mine from my days in journalism a colleague and then he often um, uses people that i know and then i eventually got invited to be on the uh, board of directors so i'm i'm involved in it i know how that works and so i just thought well this is kind of a natural so I approached them and I approached the other board members and said can I have permission to do this and uh, they granted me that so there's a key character in this book who's the founder and editor of Fair Warning named Myron Levin and he's the real guy who founded and still edits the the real Fair Warning website. Uh, It's funny you should mention Myron (laughs) Michael as well I don't know whether to call you Michael or Mike by the way which do you prefer? 
Oh, I answered anything. Mike's good. <laughs> I was intrigued because I was unaware of fair warning until reading your book, perhaps shamefully. And um, I messaged Phil last night and I was like, Phil, I've gone rogue already. I hope you don't mind. I know this is episode one, but I've already gone rogue. And uh, I tracked down Myron because, of course, you can contact him via the fair warning website. And I thought I'd message him to find out what he thought about being a character in your book. So uh, are you intrigued to find out what Myron said? That's cool. Yeah, I think you'll, he'll, you'll hear from him. Yeah, no, I've heard from him already. So Myron said, uh, first of all, it's a real thrill for us to be part of Mike's book and a great act of generosity on his part. I was bowled over last summer when Mike told me he wanted to do this. He has legions of fans who know nothing about Fair Warning, but soon many of them will. Some might become regular readers and even donors. That's certainly our hope. Um, I'll just read a little bit more for you. The book includes many things about Fair Warning that have the ring of truth. But of course, it's a work of imagination. We focus on public health, consumer labour and environmental issues, and we don't cover crime other than white collar crime and never solve murders. Also, I can tell you that while I do the fundraising, along with supervising the editorial operation, I don't spend quite as much time shaking the tree for money as the story suggests. <laughs> yeah, those are all. Um, I, had, I gave him the um, manuscript that when I was going through editing and he actually um, he sent back some notes that I then put into the or corrected and put into the book and so forth um but he said the same thing i'm not always trying to to keep this thing alive financially <laughs> but but i think um i exaggerated that because that is uh, somewhat a symbol of what's going on in journalism today that um there's mm. as traditional newspapers and so forth are are cash strapped and reducing staffs and and space and so forth for news um, you're seeing things like fair warning rise up. Um, I'm, I'm a supporter of two other um, news sites that I know of, and uh, they're kind of taking the place of that, and a lot of it is a lot of the investigative work has been kind of farmed out to these websites, and, uh, and you know, money is a big part of it. They have to keep going. It's, uh, it's you know, it pays for everything. So um, I wanted to really have that as an a aspect of the uh, novel. Yeah, I'll just read you one last bit as well, um, just before we continue, and then we can hear from the book as well, uh, because this bit made me laugh. Myron said, if you've read Mike's books, you know there's always a relentless truth seeker, usually a cop, occasionally a journalist, who is compelled to go over, under, around or through a human obstacle, usually a skittish bureaucrat bureaucrat so tethered to the rule book or institutional tradition that they stand in the way in this book i'm sort of that guy but hey i'll take it <laughs> and then he suggests that if this does get adapted for film or tv because you know let's face it that could happen uh he's up for having uh dwayne johnson or idris elba play him <laughs> well i can only say good luck with that but um <laughs> You know, it's interesting, though, the thing about, like, we don't cover crime, and that's, that's kind of covered in the book. I mean, this is what you get when you hire a, a crime reporter to be on your show, I mean, on your um, your website. And uh, mm. so it's, in a way, Myron should have seen this coming when he hired Jack. But at the same time, <laughs> it, you know, he Jack makes the argument, like, look, I'm a uh, not really giving anything away here because it's right at the beginning of the book. Jack becomes a person of interest in a, a homicide so he's interviewed by the LAPD and you, we all know Jack he's not going to just do his interview and let it go he's going to look into it and that's how it becomes a, uh, a story 
eventually that fair warning would be would definitely be interested in it would be something that affects consumers mm, for sure i just want to go back to uh, what you were saying about the, the state of investigative news at the moment mike and there's a quote in the book from jack um and it, i just want to read it to you and get a, a thought from you on this if i can uh, it's just that i feel this is where we've come to i said jack said fake news enemy of the people the president cancelling subscriptions to the Washington Post and New York Times. The LAPD thinks nothing of just throwing a reporter in jail. At what point do we take a stand? And as someone who cut his teeth on the LA Times, do you fear for the state of journalism, especially in your country at the moment? Oh, definitely, for sure. Um, it's, it's, it's tough out there, and it's tough on the financial level we just talked about, but now the advent in the last three or four years of... of a growing population of people viewing the media as the enemy, um, which to me is crazy. The media is the watchdog um, on society, and it's a very much needed cornerstone of society. I mean, just, you know, I recently saw a uh, a photo, I think it was in a newspaper, you know, involving this um, the virus we're all find ourselves in, and it was somebody on a beach holding up a sign saying, the media is the virus. And I saw that and I thought, like, boy, is that person ill-informed and, you know, wait to, to, you know, if this keeps going, we'll end up in a state where the media is completely controlled um, by the government. And, and if you think that's a good thing, then I'm talking to the wrong people, you know. It's just, it's, it's just very, very concerning to me where we're headed. It's terrifying. It's utterly terrifying. And I think you make the point incredibly well in the book. Um, and it absolutely rings true then why you'd want to bring in a site that operates in the real world and just shine a light on it and, and see what happens next, I suppose, with that. Um, it makes absolute sense. I guess if it feels right now, seems like a good time to hear from Fair Warning. Um, do you want to set up what you were going to read? Sure. Um, so uh, we've kind of covered it that um, Jack has found himself um, working for this news site that mostly is on consumers, and it's kind of a threadbare uh, operation, and he's in kind of a threadbare part of his life, and um, this is just him um, turning in a story and leaving, but it has a little kicker at the end that talks about Jack as a character. I got up from my cubby to tell Myron that my story was finally in and that I was leaving for the day. But he was in his own cubicle, talking on the phone, and I could tell as I approached that he was on a fundraising call. Myron was founder, editor, reporter, and chief fundraiser for Fair Warning. It was a nonprofit, and he was always looking for the great white whale who would sponsor us and turn us from beggars into choosers, at least for a while. We worked out of an office in a typical two-story plaza in Studio City. The first level was all retail and food, while the second floor was walk-in businesses like car insurance, manicure, pedicure, yoga, and acupuncture, except us. Fair warning wasn't a walk-in business, but the office came cheap because it was located above a marijuana dispensary, and the venting in the building was such that it brought the aroma of fresh product into our office 24-7. Myron took the place at a heavy discount. I took the stairs down to the parking garage where I had an assigned space. That was a major perk. Parking in the city was always an issue. And sheltered parking was even big, an even bigger perk for me because I was in sunny California and I rarely put the top up on my Jeep. 
I bought the Wrangler new with the advance of my last book, and the odometer serves as a reminder of how long it had been since I was buying new cars and writing bestseller lists. I checked it as I fired up the engine. I had strayed 162,172 miles from the path I had once been on. Great. Sets it up very nicely. And so what we get, and the reason the link to this website we've been talking about is that, uh, and again, I hope that you don't think this is a spoiler. I'm, I'm trying to tread gently around it, Mike, but it's the notion that um, women are being targeted because of a certain genetic profile that they may have that may make them more disposed to random casual encounters than other women. Um, there's a huge amount of detail in there. I assume you went and discovered this for yourself, do you? And for example, does the DRD4 gene, does that exist or did you make that up? No, it exists. That's what genetic investigators or scientists call the promiscuity gene. And um, it's, you know, our the human genome, the whole... Uh, line of DNA is is very new and it's it's under constant research investigation testing all that kind of stuff and that's something that is out there that that it's a, a gene um, a combination I should say DRD four all is a combination that they have associated with addictive behaviors and pro promiscuity and so forth. Um, you know, whether in 10 years or 20 years, further research changes the opinion of that, but that's out there. It's in books. Uh, this whole idea of going down this path with the book came when I just saw a simple news story where the United States, the Pentagon, uh, ordered everyone in the military not to uh, submit their DNA to any of these analytic firms to find out where your who's your relatives or what country or what part of the world you you come from. They said don't do that because there's not enough security there. And um, I thought that was interesting, so I looked into it. And most of the and like in my country, there's really no government oversight o over any of that multi-billion-dollar business now. Um, the agencies that should have an oversight on it are in this five-year let's look at it let's watch it let's gather information but there's no rules uh, those will certainly come probably but to me that was wow that was an oh wow moment that i also threw into the uh the idea of uh when it came to writing this book um and i kept just digging further and read a couple books um I, one of the books i cite has a whole chapter on the drd4 um gene and and what um, really struck me was what the Pentagon said in the first place. Like right now we use fingerprints and so forth to identify ourselves. And like sometimes you can use a fingerprint on a phone and so forth and to gain entry into different things. Someday our DNA might be what we do to identify ourselves or would use what it will be what we use to identify ourselves. That might be only 10, 10 or 15 years away, but what happens if you've already mm -hmm. sent your DNA into this company that is not controlled by any government agency? Is, uh, what are the compromises that could come out of that? So these, these are just like the thoughts that started generating in my head, and at this point, I didn't even know what I'd do with it, but then it, it struck me, I think a newspaper reporter should tumble into this. And that's why I brought um, Jack back as opposed to having Harry Bosch stumble onto this in a case or 
Renee Boward or any of the other characters. It just felt to me like this was a newspaper man's job to find. Yeah, I mean, it's it's simply fascinating. It takes me back to uh, when I was like 18, 19, one of my first early summer jobs was inputting data into the mouse genome <laughs> at a laboratory in Oxfordshire near where I lived. And it's remarkable to think kind of where we've come in a relatively short space of time. And this isn't particularly leading to a question, but I also, I have similar thoughts in that, you know, at the moment we're in a pandemic and so many things are being decided really quickly about, you know, what you offer up for testing or tracing or your, you know, how people can get in contact with you. And there are kind of similar lines I think that are being blurred quite quickly for valid reasons of course but yeah it's just um it's it's hard to kind of like think where what the next step will be yeah yeah I mean it's interesting that you know Phil's question is is that is that real and I've had a few uh pre-publication reviews of this book that kind of indicate that I'm going into science fiction and I'm not there's an author's note at the back it says mm. all this is based on real science as it's known to us right now. And I'm the first to say things can change. They might find something else that predicts promiscuity or addictive behaviors and so forth. But um, that's where it is right now. And so there's really no science fiction involved in this, um, this book. But I think, um, it's gonna, I think some people will think it is. No, I mean, these adverts are online all the time. I'm always getting mm. pop-ups saying, want to re- work out who you're related to. And or right. just, you know, send us a DNA yeah, sample. Too. And, I mean, one of the things that really struck me from the plot of this is, obviously, the cheaper that it costs, the more likely it is that they're doing other things with your DNA because that's how they're subsidising the cost of the, the analytics. Yeah, that I mean, terrified that, me, Mike. Well, well that, um, that, I, that is where I really go into fiction. Most of the analytic firms out there you know you you sign like six or seven page waivers but they're they're saying to you that we're not passing your dna off without your permission and so they i think they can come back and say uh you know your dna is is perfect for some kind of testing thing we're going to do can we have your permission so what i invented where the fiction is is that a company that is so cut rate so cheap that they say up front, if you want to do this, we'll give you all your information, but it will only cost you $23. It'll be very cheap. But the, you know, the quid pro quo is that we get to use your DNA in research and we don't need your permission. You're giving us your permission when you give us your $23. And uh, as far as I know, there's no firm like that, but I I have a feeling we'll get there. Mm. Let me ask you, and I need a run up for this question, Mike. Let me ask you, how long into your research was it before you discovered what an atlanto-occipital dislocation was? <laughs> that was, uh, that's weird. I can't, I'm, I'm trying to remember how I came up with that. Um, I think it was just a real case that happened out here, and I just thought it was so uh, obscure and bizarre, you know, that that could be something that I could uh, give to a bad guy. Yeah, it's funny. Off the top of my head, I can't remember how I first came up with that. But it's a real thing, right? It's a complete break of the neck bones and the spinal cord, sometimes known as an internal decapitation, and it plays a key part in the story. I won't say any more than that. But again, it's the level of detail to to you've obviously clocked that somewhere, and it's real, and you've put it in. And I'd never heard of it until I read your book. 
Yeah, um, that's probably why I put it in the book because I heard about it somehow. I'm pretty sure it was probably in a news story. I can't think of what other source. It's not like common, you know, cocktail talk. So I think <laughs> I, 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 I think I probably re- uh, read it somewhere and um, and then you know did some more research and 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 figured it in. And how much when you went into Fair Warning? Because I know, obviously, you're a master of plot and character and pacing, but how much had you mapped out? Did you always know where this was ending up? Because I felt, reading it, there were so many points where, you know, you kind of steer you down one path and you think, okay, I think I think I can kind of see where it's happening. And then, of course, you, like, you know, do a tangent and throw you off the scent and do something else. And, and that's why it's so exciting to read. But do you have all of those bits all in your head already ready to go no not really but I do a lot of rewriting so um you know my standard answer is to say I don't outline my books but I usually don't start them till I know the beginning and I have a sense of what's how it's going to end up and that's what I did with this book but my first drafts are just all over the place and a mess and the book really comes together as I rewrite um one or two more times and so you could, I guess you could kind of say that my first draft is really a really long 400-page outline, and then, and then I really write the book. Um, but, yeah, I mean, obviously it's always in the back of my head. Um, I'm writing like I'm reading. Like I, I'm exp- uh, uh, as I write, I'm anticipating what the reader is going to think at this point. And so then the next thing is, well, let them think that because they're going to be wrong because I'm going to go this way, you know, and that's, that's basically, <laughs> you know, how, how anybody writes any book, you know, to, you always want to keep them guessing and, and not be too predictable. Was there any part of writing this that flummoxed you at all? Any bits that you got stuck on, which again, I know kind of tends to happen with most writers? Well, the, this gets to the character of, of Jack. Jack is, has you know, a reporter has a, a certain standing in society, but he doesn't have like a badge. He doesn't have the right to go in and demand answers. And so I had situations where I knew at this point, Jack has to find this certain thing out about DNA and analytics, for example. How do I get him to find that? You know, and that that was the, the point of <laughs> Flummox. And so then I would create... Um, uh, I can still remember this. And so that's when I created um, a dissatisfied um, former employee who is suing the company. And I, you know, so that was a whole device made because this is a person who has an edge or an ax to grind. And as you, as you know, as mm-hmm. a journalist, those are people that can tell you, they can take you inside because they've been inside mm-hmm. and, and they've been pushed out. And you got to always have that as a, a buffer into how much is true and so forth. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that slowed me down a little bit about how do I get information from inside this closed business. And then I remembered actually from my old days as a reporter, searched to see if anyone's suing them. And if you can find a former employee, you might find gold. And so that's, that's what I did in this book. I don't think that gives too much away. We haven't mentioned Rachel yet. And uh, we should do because she reappears in this, obviously, because Jack's in. And as I was reading this one, Mike, I thought, you know what? And I don't know if you've done this intentionally or not, but I think you've created a Conley universe. And at any one time when you decide to write a book, you could go Mickey Haller, you could go Bosch, you could go Rachel, you could go Renee, you could go Jack. 
And I actually think it's stronger than the Marvel Universe. That will be really controversial elsewhere, but I genuinely believe that. <laughs> and um, so tell us, first of all, about Rachel's involvement in this, and then do you agree with my assertion about the Connolly Universe, and is it a conscious creation? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I start, I'm going to answer backwards about the universe first. I mean, you know, I, I was fortunate that um, I wrote one book and then they wanted, then the next contract was for two books and then the one after that was three books. And so I was realizing, hey, I think I might be, I have a foothold here and I think I could be doing this for a long time if I do, if I take advantage of these opportunities and I do it right. And so part of that was, the idea that there'd be all kinds of crossovers, there can be crossovers, there's little winks here and there to uh, to other books, and a lot of that is all to reward readers who have stayed with me for a long time, and so you're lucky, you do it over time, and you get to write a lot of books, and it suddenly becomes a universe, and you know, and on one hand, yes, it was very much planned out, but at the same time, that as I was planning that, who knew? You know, who knew what opportunities I would get or how long I would get to do it? It just has turned out uh, really well. And uh, so now to get to Rachel, Rachel is, has been in other parts of the the Connolly universe, and it's uh, you know she's just not in the Jack book. She showed up with, she actually had a romance with Harry Bosch. So I mean. So she's been um, through the whole universe, which is um, cool. And I've always liked that character. She has this resilience. You know, most of my main characters, I always say they're fierce or they're relentless. And with Rachel, she has those qualities. But for the most part, I think her key quality is resilience. And then, of course, she has the kind of hope that everybody has in my books, you know, hope for... um, uh, you know, a better day, a romance, all that kind of stuff. So she's um, very interesting to me. And uh, I would say that when I started writing this book, I wasn't sure she was going to be in it because the last, excuse me, the last time I wrote about Jack and Rachel, everything seemed to be fine. And I, and so if everything's going to be fine, I wanted it to be, I wanted to turn that upside down in this book and have them not together anymore. So initially I thought, she'd be like a distant memory for Jack. But then I, I realized I needed her. I needed her skills. So I had to visit her, find out where she was at. And I invented the whole history of why they came, fell apart. And then this book became the story where they could get back together, possibly. Would you ever consider one book with all of them in? Yeah, that's like, uh, what's the... Uh, Connolly Endgame. Yeah, Avengers <laughs> Endgame, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think, yeah, that would be fun to do. And I think I think it's doable. You know, I don't know who would be the front and center lead, but um, I, think, I think that all things are possible when you have been lucky enough to be able to set this up the way I have. Yeah, it's really cool. And, uh, I mean, you were saying, obviously, you have so many beloved characters and it would be wrong not to bring up Bosch um I saw on Twitter actually just yesterday uh Stephen King's been watching the current series of Bosch on Amazon and uh he wrote that there is nothing better than Bosch it's one of the best shows on TV right now and just to kind of hear that from you know appear in in many ways and and to know that so many people are still invested in your creation albeit in a different form, but I know you're an exec producer on that series. It must fill you with immense pride, surely? Yeah, it's pretty amazing that um, 
you know, he's gigantic and he's so <laughs> he's so present on in the Twitterverse that to have that kind of endorsement. He actually has tweeted twice when he first started <laughs> watching this season and then I guess he just finished it and came out again uh, yesterday or the day before. So it's it's quite amazing and and I think we're lucky in that um, the show has gotten better year to year, season to season, and and that's not always the case. And so it's something we're really we're really proud of. And it just seems that this season that just came out last month, the sixth season, it's all anecdotal, of course, but it just seems like it's it's captured. Uh, and maybe it's because so many people are at home and and um, binging and running out of stuff to watch. But it seems like it's it's ca- captured more attention than anything in the past and it's usually the opposite usually a show comes out with great fanfare and then six seasons mm-hmm. in no one even bothers reviewing it but 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 we've gotten a lot of attention with this season uh lincoln lawyer i need to ask you about mike because i think you've got a second book coming out this year it's a two in a year year for you isn't it right yeah yeah it's interesting the, the i've done it like th- four times maybe and three of them Three of my two books in a year uh, involve Jack. Um, the Jack books I write really fast because, as I said before, he's my alter ego. I don't have to spend a lot of time thinking, like, what would he say? What would he do? I just kind of – it just goes right into the laptop. I, I write what I would say, what, what I would do. And so that makes the writing process shorter. And so every uh, – you know, Scarecrow and the Poet and now um, Fair Warning um, – I wrote those and then had time to write something else. So yeah, I'm writing a Lincoln lawyer book for the fall. Um, and I haven't written about this guy either. So this is a year to come back to old, um, old characters that I I've touched on, like I've touched on Mickey Haller a lot in Bosch books, but he has, he has not carried a book in five or six years, um, maybe even longer. And that's what he does in this book. It's it's about him, first person narrative. He's telling you the story. Can you give me a a bit of a flavor? Just whet my appetite a bit. Um, well, the book, the 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 um, the book is called um, the Law of Innocence, and it starts with Mickey Haller in jail uh, for an accused of murder. So he uh, ends up defending himself in uh, what appears to be a, a frame-up job uh, where he's been um, arrested for murder. Awesome. I, yeah. so, the, so I guess you could say it's his biggest case ever because it's his own freedom <laughs> at stake. Um, just before I leave the Lincoln Lawyer alone, um, Nat, I will come to you in a minute. But the I was, trying to, um, I was trying to ascertain online whether that's gone to TV as well, but did I see that there's been a hiccup there now? Yeah, major hiccup. Uh, I can credit it to the virus. We were back in March. We were two days away from filming um, a Lincoln Lawyer te- starting to film a Lincoln Lawyer television show for a network in the states called CBS, and then the town was shut down because of the virus, and it was postponed. And then a month later, just about a week ago, they decided not to go forward with it because it was. Uh, the show was going to be different from Network Fair. It was going to be serialized, kind of like Bosch and like the books. And networks are usually episodic, you know, like every week is a new case. So it was a bit risky for them, and they decided not to, in this environment, to to do any risky uh, programming. And so they can't, they killed it, basically. 
And now we're, um, so it was a shock. I mean, we had actors set, we had directors set, we had sets being built. It was like right on the uh, precipice of becoming a reality when this happened. So it was very disappointing. But the good thing is, the good thing is there's there appears to be people, uh, networks and, and so forth that um, may want to just step in and take it. And we've set up a lot of meet, meetings about that um, for next week. So Amazon, Amazon Prime, Amazon <laughs> yeah. Prime. Uh, that's, I mean, they're one of them, and that's that's, you know, that to me is a good sales pitch because then you could have these people, the universe, you know, the universe. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's gonna yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah, you could have people crossing paths and all that kind of stuff. It'd be fun to do. So we'll see if they're interested. Yeah, that would be awesome if it did happen. Um, but obviously, you know, it's it's such a strange time with that. I wonder, sort of two parts, really. Does does this change how you're then viewing some of the adaptations that you're very closely involved with, kind of thinking of different ways to make those productions in this ever-evolving coronavirus world that we live in? And then secondary to that, where do you sit on the spectrum of, has this increased your creativity personally in terms of writing, or has it kind of brought stuff to a bit of a, a halt? Well, the... Um... As far as the projects like in television and so forth, not, nothing's really happening. Like so, we we were writing the seventh season of Bosch, and we had it mapped out, and it was actually starting on um, New Year's Day of this year. You know the time frame of the show, and I think the whole idea doesn't get past January, so we can proceed with that when we're allowed to film again in this city we'll go forward and there will be no coronavirus in that story. I'm sure we'll debate, you know, this would be this will be a season that will come out next April. Who knows what that will be like, what our world will be like, whether everyone's still wearing masks or whatever. Um, and then, so we'll, before we film, I'm sure we'll talk about, are we kidding ourselves that we're doing a show that's pre, pre-pandemic? Um, or... Is it going to be comforting to people that will be so tired of the pandemic that they'll want something like this? So, so there's like no real answer. As far as my own personal creativity and writing, I went through five weeks where I couldn't write a thing. I, it, you know, I'm, I write very contemporary novels. Um, I was this Lincoln lawyer story I was talking about actually took place in April of this year, and I had started writing it back in December, um, but I. I planned it all around April, and of course, April and Mickey's in jail. He'd probably get the virus because the jails are full of, are like seventy percent um, um, hit by this. So, so, and I don't know the ending. So, I, I basically stopped writing my book. Didn't know what I was going to do, and five weeks went by, and I don't think five weeks have gone by since I graduated from college where I haven't written. But I had this five-week creative slump where. Um, you know, I had some stuff going on in Hollywood and so forth, but I had not was not writing a book. And then I kind of retooled the book, moved it backwards, uh, so it starts in December and then it carries into the beginning of the virus. So there will be. So this book is scheduled to come out in November. Who knows what November will be like? But it will be a you know a Mickey Holler story. But there's going to be little bits of reflection of what was going on in the early stages of this and how. There were warnings and so forth out there, but no one was really paying attention, including me. I, you know, I did some. I, I did this thing. First week of March, I was with uh, thirty-eight 
baseball friends of mine, and we all got together and to go to a baseball game. And that was the first week of March, and we weren't even really cognizant of what was going on. Um, so I also went to the Sundance Film Festival, and, and now it's believed that was like a hotbed of it starting. And then all the people from the uh, film festival just go back to all their places around the world and carry it with them and so forth. So there's a lot of... Have you been tested, Mike? No, I, I have not been tested because it takes too long to get tested, and, and I haven't been sick. You know, maybe I'm one of those... Uh, uh, carriers that don't show any symptoms, but um, I'm just staying at home. Yeah. Was it terrifying when you couldn't write if that was the longest time that you've been unable to write since since college? Um, I don't know. I don't want to say it was that strong of a reaction that I was terrified because um, I've always felt that, you know, I've had much shorter moments of, uh, you know, how am I going to do this or how do I keep it going? So I always kind of felt it would come back. What the concern to me was that I'm on a schedule. Um, you know, when I, I talked about how it's so easy for me to do two books, it's not really <laughs> that easy. No. If I if I do two books in a year, it's a it's a real um, it's like a, a clock, you know, and you mm-hmm. and um, to make deadlines and so forth. So I was thinking I just lost five weeks and I really only had eight eight months to write this book. That was a significant chunk of loss. Yeah. Um, luckily, though, when I got back on it, I just it started going really well, and I think I made up for. I'm almost to the point where I can say I've made up for that five week five weeks, but um, not quite yet. I'm still on schedule, and so I'm not worried about it. Just my last comment that I wanted to make on that was, I'm curious, obviously, you know, you have pretty good pedigree in this field anyway, but I wonder what you are like in those five weeks. Are you somebody who tries to ignore like messages from publishers or agents and you'd be like, no, no, it's fine. Or were you kind of upfront going, just leave me alone, seriously, like just leave me alone. I think they generally leave me alone in the first place. And, you know, if I'm not writing, they don't know. So they probably thought all was well. I had I had one meeting where I uh, I forget it was about something else it was probably about fair warning, and and the schedule with scare, fair warning and promoting it and so forth and I basically at that point said look I'm not going to make my deadline I don't think um, and and, and uh, they make deadlines so that they have a lot of room and everyone has a lot of room so it can be squeezed and I said I want to put the squeeze on it so basically I got about four more weeks before I'm expected and I to turn this in and I lost five so it's 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 going to be okay Okay. hopefully you're listening to Mike now and you're appreciating just what a brilliant voice he's got and I hope that you've checked out murder book which is Mike's own podcast and where are you at with that um we are working on a um second season of that and I think um uh it will be out probably in June or July um, we're, we're far along with it and, um, it's, it's a good season. It's about, um, it's, it's funny, this, uh, this, this LAPD detective who I based Renee Ballard on, her name's Mitzi Roberts. Uh, she's been a homicide detective with the LAPD for, um, I think 12 or 15 years. And she's been helping me with my books for years and years and then helping with the boss show. Well, in the meantime, she has a real job, which is catching real killers and she caught this guy um back in 2012 for three murders um you know so he was a serial killer and they expected that he had killed other people and 
um, the investigation was very interesting. And then they went to trial in 2014 and he was convicted. And then in 2016, he started confessing and he's now considered by the FBI, the most prolific, uh, serial killer in American history. He's, he's uh, confessed to 93 murders and they've confirmed about 60 of them so far. And, um, so, and Missy Roberts caught him. She was just dedicated on this case. Uh, she worked it mostly alone, uh, sometimes with other partners. And um, he's pretty well known now. His name's Sam Little. Uh, like our our big uh, news show over here called 60 Minutes did a whole thing on him. But it's all about his confessions. No one's really told the story about how he was caught. And so I'm, that's what my podcast is going to be. It's called Killer on the Road. And I think it'll be out in June. He gets a mention in Fair Warning as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's um, good recall. <laughs> um, also, I just wanted to mention, without feeling like I'm the person who keeps bringing you people, praising you throughout this podcast, uh, we, <laughs> we did chat to Linda LaPlante uh, the other day as well, who is a huge admirer of your work as well and kind of cited you as, as one of her writing peers that she really respects. And I think you have a very similar work ethic and the amount of research that you put in before you get to writing and um I was kind of trying to work out from her what she sees as your your biggest attribute and she put it all down to character um which was just again sort of fed in from the people that you meet and the way that you you put every character in that book matters and has something to say and is fully formed and that's hard to do but yeah again not particularly a question, but, you know, it must feel... She she said to us, Mike, that you were the master and you were the benchmark for this <laughs> genre of writing. That's very nice. I mean, um, I, I've met her a few times and I've, I'm a big fan of her as well and the TV shows and so forth that have come from her work. And uh, so I really appreciate hearing something like that. But she's right and then it's what she does too. Um, you know, it's about... All, all the police stuff, all the procedure, all that is really important. But at, at the end of the day, it's window dressing on on character. Um, you know, the realtors always say location, location, location. I think writers should say character, character, character. And that's really what connects you with readers. Um, it's not really the, uh, you know, where the clues are found or, or overlooked and all that kind of stuff. It's really the character that connects. Hey, Mike, listen, one more from me before we get the recommendations. I don't even know if you're aware of this, but obviously I did what all good journalists do and put your name into Google. And do you know that you're now so famous that an artist has created some mock Blue Note jazz albums? Oh, yeah, I saw those. Those are really cool. Yeah, yeah. They they look incredible. They've used some of the stills from the Bosch TV show with Titus. But the um, th this is obviously because... This style of music, you're genuinely a fan of, aren't you? As well as Harry being a fan of. Yeah, I didn't. It didn't start out that way. It started out as me being a journalist and saying Harry's going to listen to jazz, so I'm going to research jazz and I'm going to find out, find the good stuff that he would listen to. And then it kind of took me over, and it became um, the music I listen to more often than not. Um, but it, yeah, at first it was just a little tip of my hat to my father. Actually, it was more his music than mine. And when I was writing the first book, he was very ill and so forth. So I was thinking about him a lot. So I was playing a lot of the stuff he liked while I was writing. And uh, then, you know, as I keep saying, I got lucky and 
here we are 27 years later or so, and I'm still writing about Harry Bosch, and he's still listening to jazz. Mike, let's get your recommendations. And if someone phoned you up now and said, Mike, we're in lockdown, we need a book to read, but it can't be one of yours. Okay, so I'll recommend two. They're very L.A.-centric. Um, on the nonfiction side, Chinatown is my favorite movie of all time, and it's uh, you know came out in an era where there were some movies that I have really loved, but this is my favorite. So a book just recently came out called The Big Goodbye, Chinatown in the Last Years of Hollywood uh, by a guy named Sam Wasson. And it's a really good book because it really gets behind the scenes of, of uh, Robert Town, the, the screenwriter who wrote Chinatown. And it's a reflection of society in the late 60s, early 70s, and all the influences that you know, came about for them to make that great film. Uh, so that's called The Big Goodbye, Chinatown in the Last Years of Hollywood. And then on the uh, fictional side, I, um, uh, this book, Your House Will Pay by Steph Cha, just won um, the Los Angeles Times uh, Fiction Prize uh, for crime fiction. Um, and I had read it right before that. And it's, uh, it's set in L.A., it's written by a Korean American, and it, so it's an angle in LA. A lot of it's filtered through her own experiences that I haven't even touched. And I've written 27 books about LA, or 25 books, or whatever it is. No, over 30. <laughs> anyway, I, I've, <laughs> I've uh, yeah, I was I was mixing up books and years, but anyway. Um, I feel like sometimes I feel like I've hit this town from every angle and then I'll read a book like your house will pay. And I, and it's, it's humbling because it's like a really good book. It jumps around in time from the early nineties when we had the riots and there was a lot of tensions between African Americans and Korean Americans. And that's something that's not almost never even written about, but it was a very, um, big part of what was going on in Los Angeles in the early nineties and the riots and so forth, and then it jumps forward and so forth. Um, so it's just a, a very unique take on a, um, a city that has been literally trampled by writers for decades and decades. And so when you come across something that's new like that, it's, it's really something to uh, celebrate. And um, really well done book, Your House Will Pay. The brilliant Michael Connolly there talking to us from his home in L.A. Fair Warning is out now, the Jack McAvoy story that we discussed, and his recommendations for you were in non-fiction The Big Goodbye, Chinatown and the Last Years of Hollywood by Sam Wasson, W-A-S-S-O-N, Sam Wasson. And his fiction pick was Your House Will Pay by Steph Char, C-H-A, the surname Steph Char. I'm going to confess, I haven't read either of those books, but I'm going to add them to my list as well of something to read, hopefully, when I get a quiet moment next. Yeah, I was also uh, very impressed with how cool you were considering he is number one, your favourite writer of all time, as people will get to hear. I, I just can't do that. I can't play it quite as cool as you can. You were totally measured. But that's what I was just about saying that. That was the first interview I called him, Mike. <laughs> yeah. It was like when you said it was OK to call you Nat, it sounded odd. But then... Yeah, but then Natalie sounded like I was telling you off all the time. Natalie! <laughs> all right. 
Yeah, no, I thought um, Mike Connolly was uh, a joy. And again, really generous because um, I know he doesn't do that much in terms of interviews always. And, um, you know, because he's been doing it for so long, I'm sure sometimes these things get quite boring. So you just really hope you ask something that's a, a bit more left field, maybe, or, you know, hopefully is satisfying for people who've either picked up one of his books or have read all 34. The other thing as well, though, um, I don't want to sound like I'm blowing too much smoke up our asses, but I like to think that the passion that we have comes across mm-hmm. and that that would make it different from just a bog standard interview that they might do. But you're right, Michael mm-hmm. Connolly's only doing, to my knowledge, he's only done two interviews for this book in the UK. And one one is a newspaper interview and the other is us. <laughs> and the other, he doesn't quite know how he got coerced into doing it, but he's <laughs> ended up on our podcast. Yeah. But, you know, he, so, yeah. he paid the ransom, so it was fine. Yeah, I, I did also leave it quite um, quite tight for that one because of homeschooling and everything else going on and, and day job. Um, I only finished uh, Fair Warning literally like an hour and a half before we did that interview, which we did in, in quite late one evening because of the time difference. Mm. But I was on quite an adrenaline high as well. What, because you just finished it? Because I just finished it. And, well, like, and the also last, the last 100 pages. pages Oof, yeah, it's full on, isn't it? Word. Full on. I know, yeah. I know. He's a master at pacing. He is. A real master at pacing. The Bosch books are super. I can't wait for the Lincoln Lawyer to come out. I really can't. Yeah. I also, I'm a bit annoyed that I kind of wanted to say... So is Matthew McConaughey, is he like in the realm for that at all? But you kind of, I don't know, sometimes you don't want to pry too much, do you? Do you know what? I've asked that question before, Nat, and I can't remember the answer, but the answer is something like they were going to do another film together after the first film Mm. and then it just didn't happen. I I mean, the more I speak to writers about getting involved in film and TV, the murkier that world seems. Mm -hmm. And this business, Lisa Jewell was telling us, wasn't she, about options. And yeah. I know I know writers who get really frustrated when their work gets optioned. It, it means that they get a sum of money to not do anything else with that work. And then it can sit on a production shelf for, say, two years. It doesn't hit the TV screen or the cinema screen. And then you've got to start again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think... I mean, I was gutted for him that Lincoln Lawyer TV series got pulled. Didn't he say the Friday before they were due to start on the Monday yeah. shooting? It was really yeah. close, wasn't it? It was really close. It was really close. And I guess, you know, if you're doing the TV series, then that kind of brings in a whole different roster, perhaps, of people. And I don't know the kind of full time period of when that might come in. So McConaughey might not even be in the frame at all, if you know what I'm saying. But all I do want to put out there is, you know, this new book that he's writing, uh, the fact that you're going to have the Lincoln lawyer representing himself. Mm. Come on, that's got like Mm. McConaughey all over it, hasn't it? Uh... (laughs) (laughs) I can just see it now. What was that phrase that you used to me ages ago when I mentioned him to you? Oh, was it McConaughey? About the fact that he, <laughs> did, <I? laughs> he did all these brilliant, he did all these yeah, rom coms that were panned mm-hmm. and all suddenly became a serious actor. Yeah, I, I also just want to state for the record that I never panned those rom coms. Love a good rom com. Yeah, you do actually. That's one of the reasons I like you because I also am the same. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think we do cool. like similar things actually, don't we? Yeah, sometimes I think we differ on, on some stuff. Uh, musicals. Oh, yeah, you've got a big punch on for musical, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. And sing a lot. And also, the other one. <laughs> Don't bring uh, up all the other ones. There's one more. There's one more. And then I'll say it and then we'll walk away from it. Otherwise, we'll fight. Okay. Eurovision. Oh, yeah. Come on. You've got to love it, right? <sighs> I can't. It I had was to stop so myself. good. Even yeah, the lockdown even on a podcast, version. I had to stop myself from saying what I was going to say. No, but seriously, like the lockdown version, I'm going to put this out here. The lockdown version was one, if not the best, lockdown 
produced TV live extravaganza I have seen in this horrendous corona times that we're in right now. Um, It was so well done and genuinely got quite choked up during some of it, but it wasn't totally maudlin. It was quite euphoric at times too. Um, Yeah. I told you, didn't I? Now (laughs) stop. I told you. I told you. She gets like this all the time and I have to put up with this. Oh, should we get on to books again? Yeah, please. (laughs) 